Let's pray as uh, we begin and look to God's word. Father, thank you for this morning and uh, for the words of song that we can sing to you in praise and worship, to the prayers that we can offer to you in dependence on who you are, to the reading of your word that we do as another act of worship as we hear your desire, your plan for us as a church. God, just guide us this morning with your Holy Spirit. Allow us to understand your words. Allow us to to take them in and to think on them, what it means for our life, for our life as an individual, our life as a church, and how we can move forward and uh, follow your mission, the mission of the church. God, guide us now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn with me to Acts 13. We're gonna look at verses one through 12. You may have wondered why uh, Luke was reading something completely different than Revelation when, uh, when he read this morning from Acts 15. But it's kind of the end outcome of what started here in Acts 13 and uh, seeing a church established among the Gentile people. We're going to read here in Acts 13, just going a few verses at a time until we get through uh, verse 12. So Acts 13, 1 through 12. We'll probably read verses 1 through 4 to start out. Follow along with me. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. There's a little uh, context. You can keep reading Sometimes I continue reading the rest of it while uh, Pastor Wayne is, is talking to keep going on there. But uh, just a little context for this, this section here in Acts. It's right in the middle of the book, kind of. We've got about 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 12, it all talks about the church. But when it refers to the church, it almost inevitably refers to believers in Jerusalem. It talks about the church in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. Go tell it to the church, which means those in Jerusalem. But there's a shift here that happens in Acts 13 that the church is no longer the church in Jerusalem. The church is talked about a local church, and here it's in Antioch. And as, we, uh, as you look through the Bible, you'll notice it's many other towns as well. You've got Galatia, Philippi, Ephesus, all these other towns where, that uh, letters were written to. And that occurs here at Acts 13. It's a, a shift in what was happening in the progression of the outreach of the church, the progression of Christ's mission, God's mission, to seek and to save the lost. So here, this local church, it, uh, it's led and directed by a guy named Saul. Sometimes we think of him as another name. We'll get to that later. But this guy, man Saul, he was involved with the leadership of the church. And another man, Barnabas, as well, were there at the very beginning of the church and made it to uh, grow and develop. But Antioch, they became a church when they started to regularly hear the gospel as they received instruction of the faith, you know, they appointed church leaders that you see at the beginning of chapter 13 that they had five leaders that were there that uh, were involved with what was going on. And they even implemented their vision to the world of what they were going to do. Back in uh, chapter 11, at the very end of that, it explains how the church in Antioch began and how Barnabas came there to encourage them. And uh, Barnabas, he was a man of faith and uh, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So as, as Barnabas was working there, he's building up the church. They hear the needs of other churches 
mainly the church in Jerusalem, since that was really the only church at this point that we know of. They heard of the needs of the church in Jerusalem, and this new church in Antioch, they sent funds, everything to help out, to uh, help aid them in this time of famine and uh, poverty there in Jerusalem. And Barnabas and this other man, Saul, who we've talked about, they were the two that went there and took that um, caravan of uh, goodwill and uh, encouragement to Jerusalem. Now they're back in the church of Antioch, ministering there. As we read through these words, you might notice some things. There's only one church in Antioch. Antioch's a huge town, very, very large. It was the center of uh, a lot of defense for the Roman government. And as they had it sat there, they, they made it uh, not only like a government center, but a center for everything. There was worship of all these other gods. There was everybody, they would send refugees there, Greek people, to fill it up to make it more Roman. And uh, that's where this is, the church in Antioch. And they, um, they had a great church. It was thriving, and it was faithful to God as we see here. So they had one church throughout this whole congregation. Everybody was meeting together, but there were several spiritual leaders, five men to be exact, all of them with the same description as Barnabas, good men full of the Holy Spirit and faith. So in verse two, it talks about the church. It gives us an idea, a glimpse of what, what the church is doing. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, their focus was worship right from the beginning. They were worshiping, ministering to the Lord is that word actually. It's interesting that uh, Luke uses that word here. Normally worship was something that uh, specifically talked about Old Testament worship of God. Here Luke combines even this new church, these new believers in Christ, they're doing the same thing that Old Testament saints were doing. They're worshiping God, serving God, and uh, brings the two together. There's as though there's no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile, as, uh, even just in the words that he uses to write this book. As, as Luke, the author of Acts, he was writing these things. We talked about it several times before uh, Wayne brings it up at the beginning of the book of Luke. He talks about, you know, my dear Theophilus, I write these things so that you may know the, the truth of the Jesus Christ and what he has done. Acts is a continuation of that book of Luke. It's again, in the second book, O Theophilus, it says at the beginning of Acts, who we see he's writing with the same purpose, the same intent, so that they will know the truth. And his words are, are used specifically for that purpose. So we know what the church was all about, what God was about in the church, and uh, the end result of what God was doing. Here the people, the church, these new believers, you might call them, they've only been going for about a year, maybe two, according to uh, what we have here in, in uh, chapter 11. But they're devoted to God. They're completely devoted in everything. They're focused worship. They're fasting. Normally, the church got together, they would eat. There would be a meal. There would be a time of uh, breaking bread. That's what was common in the, in the day. As you look back earlier in Acts, like in Acts chapter 2 and 3, whenever you see a great number were added to their, to their number that day, and they, they ate together, they broke bread together, everything they had was in common. But they were doing that. But here at this church in Antioch, they're not just breaking bread. They're coming together specifically to minister to the Lord. They've laid aside some of those things to a, for a more concentrated time of worship. And uh, it's an interesting that he puts that as the basis for what's going on in the church in Antioch. Their worship is focused on the Lord, ministering to him. So during this time, you see the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It's uh, with a, this church wholly committed, they were desiring to know what God would have them. Here's this, this church, mostly of Hellenists, those that were not Jewish descent, they were Greek-speaking, non-Jewish people, and uh, 
they didn't have the word of God for years and years like the Jewish people did. They didn't know all the teachings. They were coming into this somewhat new, being taught by the apostles or those that had spread out from uh, the church in Jerusalem. And yet they know to come together to worship and as they're committed, here the Holy Spirit says to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. This is actually one of the, the only places you have what looks like an audible voice of the Holy Spirit. As they were worshiping, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. The whole church was involved. It's not just the five men that uh, were the leaders of the church. They were leading them and directing them toward this one goal. But the whole church was involved in this worship and fasting. As uh, we see in verse 3, it says, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It's the whole church involvement as uh, we see their worship, their following of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, but it's God that was in charge of all that was going on. God called these men. God sent them out. And they were on their way by God's power, we might see and, as we continue on. But the entire Antiochian church involvement, it's, it's important to see how they were involved in what God was doing, in the commissioning of Barnabas and Saul, of sending them out from their own congregation. These are probably their best men, the ones that, great teachers, they'd been there and established a church in Antioch, ones you wouldn't want to leave. We just had Jory leave recently. He was a, a great teacher and a, a help in many different ways, and spiritual guide and direction. And we're like, do we really want him to go? No, we don't in our heart want him to go, but here he is as uh, called by God to, to reach the people and we're behind him in that and their whole family. That's the same or similar situation to what's going on here. The Holy Spirit is at work in the church. They have a great desire to see God's word shared amongst others, to do the work which uh, the Spirit has called them. It doesn't, it's kind of vague in that passage, the work, but as you look through the rest of Acts, you know this work was to share the gospel, to develop the church, to make God's name known in these different nations first in Jerusalem and then to all the nations of the world, which is what Barnabas and Saul are involved with. The Holy Spirit moves the, the whole church. It's not merely just one person here or there, but the whole church together, as we see in this. These two great teachers, not only did they lose them, but at the same time, they did commit themselves to prayer for them. They committed themselves that they would be a mission center as they obey what uh, the Spirit is doing. So we see a little bit of the mission of the church here in these few verses about their obedience, about their devotion to one another and to God's word, and then their quick response to what God would have them do according to his mission. And uh, as we continue there, it said they laid their hands on them and sent them off. But let's look at verse four. It says somewhat the same thing, but with a little different sender. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So as I was reading through this, that question came to mind. Was it the church who sent Paul and Silas, uh, not Paul, Barnabas and Silas, or was it the church? And I would say both. As you see here, the church is obedient to the Spirit. So the Spirit sent them out by instructing the church to do so, and the church is sending them out having been directed by the Spirit to do so. So they're both working hand in hand to send out these people, following the Spirit, being in obedience. Paul even uses this later. He talked to the, the people in Galatia. In uh, Galatians 1.1, he said, I'm not sent from men or by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. He knew that it was God and his Spirit that was the ultimate sender, even though he was under the uh, direction of the church. You might even look later in uh, Acts as you were to read through that. They came back from all their trip and uh, reported back 
to the church in Antioch exactly what they had done, not just to the leaders, but to the whole church. They would know what had happened, what God had done to the people that they ministered to. So as we think about this, thinking about a church with a mission, we see that there, there must be something for this church in Antioch. God had a desire for them, and uh, that desire continued to the other churches. We look all the way to Revelation. He had a desire for them to be fulfilling a specific mission as well. Here, it's God-centered sending. It's reaffirmed over and over that God is the one that was at work here. The church obeyed, and then the sent obeyed. Barnabas and Saul were uh, willing to go along with what was happening, even though they were in the, the height of their ministry there in Antioch. It must have been, you know, in our minds, that would be an incredibly difficult thing to do. But these men went joyfully, and they went off as they were sent by the Spirit. Let's continue with uh, verses 5 and uh, Look at what happens here. Chapter 13, verse 5. It says, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. This is just a start of the work that was set aside for them. We see what they did. There was one thing. After their obedience to the Spirit to being sent out, they proclaimed the word of God. They proclaimed the word of God. This was the regular operation for them to do. The apostles and their companions, they proclaimed the word of God whenever they were sent out. The synagogues were the religious centers of the area, and so you would expect people to be there to want to hear, to be receptive to the word of God. And so that's where they were going at this point. But they also actively seek out new Gentile converts, those in the population who are interested, who are God-fearing as a uh, has been termed Cornelius back when Peter went and talked with him, God-fearing men, those who desire to know God but don't have the knowledge of salvation yet. The second part was especially challenging, going to reach these Gentile people because eventually there was a need to articulate, to set up what would be the conduct for Gentile believers, not Jewish customs as had been in the past, but what these Gentiles weren't under the Mosaic law as we uh, read in Acts 15. But uh, there was a new, a new direction for them to follow the word of God. Just a little parenthetical reference here. We see this guy, John, and they had John to assist them. John wasn't sent out specifically uh, in the same way as Barnabas and Saul, but he came along and uh, he, he was helping with whatever was needed, helping in the ministry, helping with any of their, you know, tactical needs, you might say, logistical things. He was their, their guide as they uh, went through these things. You'll see John later in the book of Acts as well, he um, decides to leave and not continue, and then that causes other issues. But here he's helping and uh, a great assistance to what they're doing. So as we've gone through, we see that the church was worshiping the Lord. Those that they sent obeyed, and when they're sent, they did the work that the Holy Spirit had sent them to. They proclaimed the word of God as part of God's mission and the mission for the church. Now, as we see that proclamation of God's word, sometimes that comes really easily, and it's not a problem at all. Other times there is great um, trial, conflict, issues with those that receive it. And uh, I think we'll see a little bit of both of that here as we continue in, in verse 6 of chapter 13. Let's read through there, verse 6, 7, and 8. It says, they, wrong, wrong chapter. When they had gone through the whole land as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. 
He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intellect, intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Here we've got an example of both. As they preach and proclaim the word of God, they'd gone through the whole land. Here they are proclaiming this message of salvation, the word of God, and as far as Paphos. So they're on this island of Cyprus. You would think, why go to this island? It's disconnected from everything. You know, in our current mission um, strategies and uh, thoughts, normally you want to go to a city center. You want to go someplace where there's lots of people that have come from the country that will go back out. There's all sorts of uh, philosophies behind how missions is done today. But uh, here, they went to a small island off the coast, island of Cyprus, and there they are speaking. It's maybe 100 miles across, I think 75 miles high, something like that. It's not a large island at all. And they're going there to proclaim the word of God. But there's a reason for it. There's a reason why they were led that direction. And it's because the Spirit directed them for this, this purpose. As we saw, a person there summoned to hear the word of God. So Paphos is the Roman government center of Cyprus. We left Antioch, which was kind of a Roman government center to protect Rome. Now we're at another government center of the land of Cyprus. You know, they came upon a certain magician it starts out with, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. It's interesting how Luke starts with that, brings up this guy, Bar-Jesus. That's his Jewish name, and he's a Jewish false prophet. If you were to uh, look in the book of 2 Peter, you would know that uh, the outlook for false prophets, false teachers, is not good. We talked about this with the, uh, the high schoolers. What, if there was one word, any of you, what would be the end for false prophets? You guys remember? Micah said it, destruction. Yeah, and they will be destroyed in their destruction. It continues on. As uh, we'll look at Revelation, we'll see some of that. But uh, they will have destruction. It's not a good outlook for them. Let me look here. In, uh, this is Second Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. I think Luke starts with this guy, this false prophet, to give you a little expectation of something that's to come. This, uh, it's not going to bode well for him. But in the same token, here's another man the proconsul who summoned Barnabas because he wanted to hear the word of God. But this false prophet named Bar-Jesus is, uh, it sounds like he's going to Bar-Jesus, but actually it means, means son of salvation, which is kind of ironic since that's exactly what he's not wanting to do. So he was with the proconsul. The proconsul is the, the ruler. They're, just, they're set up for a one-year period of time by the Roman government. They're elected by a senate and, and there. So he's here in Cyprus only for a short time. It's not like, Barnabas and Saul could come a later time and he'd still be there. This is the only time where they have the audience with this uh, man as a ruler. And he was a man of intelligence and he wanted to know the things of the word. He must have been <clears throat> someone who thought about religious matters. If he had this guy, Bar-Jesus, who proclaimed to be a Jewish teacher and was, was uh, there, who was actually a false prophet, 
he must have had a, some desire, some knowledge of what was going on in Judaism, but here he hears the words of Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear further. He wanted to hear the word of God. And uh, this proconsul, he invites them there. These are unknown men. You know, Barnabas and Saul, they're just, they're there at the church in Antioch, not really known. There was a church there. I mean, outside of the believers, there's not a big name for them in any way. They don't really have papers of recommendation saying, here, listen to these guys. These, they have what you need. They're what you're looking for. They're new to the area. I mean, they've just arrived and uh, they're summoned by the ruler of Cyprus. How do you think that would happen? If you look back through the previous things that have happened, it seems like the Holy Spirit as it was at work in the church, is also at work here in the life of Sergius Paulus. You know, it's amazing to see how God moves in his obedient people's lives. So this is kind of like the Peter and Cornelius act event in, in Acts 10. Peter was in one town, and he has these dreams, and he's told to go and uh, talk to Cornelius, this Gentile, someone he should never talk to as a Jew, and go there and proclaim God's message, because this Jew, or this, uh, this Gentile, wanted to know. He was a God-fearer. He had sought out to uh, hear Peter and to know the truth of salvation. This, uh, here's another man who desires to hear the word of God, this Sergius Paulus in uh, chapter, or in verses six and seven here. But it's like 275 miles away from Antioch. For us, that sounds like, oh, just a quick drive down, down, the, down the street. But uh, for them, they're walking. They're not, they're not doing much of anything except for walking. It's going to take them a long time. They've already walked around the, the country. But uh, to get from Antioch on the mainland, taking the boat across, walking across the uh, island of Cyprus, here they are. There was a, you know, this group of prophets and, and teachers and the congregation worshiping God, committed to him, saying, what should we do? Where, who's ready? Where should we go? And God looks down and says, here, since Barnabas and Saul, I have someone chosen, this guy, that they don't know of yet, Sergius Paulus, who wants to know the message. And here are my chosen ones, Barnabas and Saul, ready to go. So I know what to do about this, God says. I'll take care of it. And he plans and creates the mission. He has everything set as he sends them out. He creates a straight path from Antioch to Paphos and puts them together. And he saves Sergius Paulus, as we'll see in just a moment. But God was at work as this man wanted to hear the word of God. But even in the midst of God being at work, there was this obstacle, this opposition, as we see in Bar-Jesus, the uh, false prophet who was involved. And it said, but Elamis, if I can say his word, Elamis, the magician, Elamis is his Greek name. We have his Jewish name, Bar-Jesus. But everyone in that area, they had two names. They'd have, if they were Jewish, that is, they'd have a Jewish name or a Hebrew name, and they'd have a Greek name because they're now a part of the Roman society. And this guy as well, his uh, Jewish name being Bar-Jesus, son of salvation, not real great, but his Greek name, they knew who he was. It means Elimus. The magician, for that's the meaning of his name, as it says in verse 8. He opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Here was a straight path that Barnabas and Saul had taken, following the leading of the Spirit from their town, their church, to this man who wanted to know the truth. And yet, there's an obstacle in the way. Elimus, the magician, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This guy, he was a magician or a sorcerer. You know, these things were banned back in the Jewish culture many, many years before. 
and uh, still banned in Judaism at the time of, that this was happening. But even with it being banned, people were practicing it as though they were Orthodox Jews. This is, they were telling falsehoods, being false prophets, and saying that they were following the, the word of God, the, the testament that God had given, the law of Moses. But he resists the work of God. He's not for it. He resists the word of God. He doesn't want it to be heard. He's working to, toward an opposite goal, away from the faith. It has nothing to do with a straight path that uh, Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas were on. Why, why would someone do that? Why would it make them... What would make them think that they would prevail? Why would Elimus think that he would have any footing in what's going on here? Well, let's look at the following verses, and it kind of answers that question. In verse 9, it says, But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making the crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeing, seeking people to lead him by the hand. So here we have Elimus, thinking he's got the upper hand, trying to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul knows differently. Here we see Saul. This is the first time we see his second name, Paul, which is an interesting contrast to what Bar-Jesus and Elimus were just doing. We have this man who was known in the Jewish world and as a false prophet, as a, as a Jew, but yet his Greek name revealed who he really was, a magician, a sorcerer, someone who had nothing to do with God. Saul, kind of his, his old name, that's who he was as the one attacking Christianity, putting away the believers, destroying the church, going even to uh, take down believers in other cities that uh, he was heading to. But he was changed by God. He was changed to not be one who was opposed to God, but instead one who was going to teach the straight paths of the Lord, one who was going to bring the truth not only to the Jewish people, but to the Gentile people. And his name, we see here, this isn't the only place where it was changed. He had it before, but we see it here for the first time. He was called Paul. He is now on equal footing, you might say, with this guy, Elimus. Both have uh, not only Jewish roots, but uh, are now fully on the side of the Greek in this conversation that's going on. But there's another contrast between Paul and Elimus. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit, but Elimus was not. As we look in verse 10, it says, He is full of all deceit and villainy. He is full of something completely different than being full of the Holy Spirit. Saul was explicit in his accusation when it came to Elimus. Elimus practiced deceit and wickedness to the highest degree. He was completely opposed to what God was doing. He was a servant of Satan. I don't know how many times you've come up to someone and said, you are the son of the devil. We don't normally do that, do we? It's not, not something that uh, comes rolls off our tongue, but here's someone who was opposed to the message they had, the word of God. He was opposed to what they were doing in their actions by going and spreading that message. He was opposed to someone even hearing those words and believing in them. He was opposed to anyone being in his way for his own greed, his own profit, because he was the sorcerer magician. If, he, uh, if Sergius Paulus believed in the word of God, this guy, Elimus, would lose his job. No longer does he need to be there to give false prophecies, to, to bring up the you know, spiritualism, things like that. But uh, instead, he would be put out because the truth would be revealed. And he knew that. And he wanted to do everything he could to redirect, to 
make crooked the straight paths of the Lord, as it says here. This false prophet had set everything himself against everything that was right and just and true. As we look at this, it says, you will, not, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? What are the, what are the straight paths of the Lord? I referred to it in a little bit as God's direction from Antioch to this man, Sergius Paulus, for his salvation. But as we look at verse 8, it uses the exact same word, making crooked. It says seeking to turn. It's actually the same, diastrophe, of turning away. Instead of going down the straight and narrow path towards salvation, he was trying to do anything to get him to go off, to go on some sort of bunny trail and uh, not listen, not follow, not believe. That, uh, that word diastrophe means to pervert, to cause to turn away from correct behavior, to cause this, a state of unbelief, to mislead. That's all Elimus was hoping to do with his words, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. What these two men, we might call missionaries, seeing how they are ones responsible to carry out the mission that God had set forth, that God had sent them on. He was trying to turn the work of those missionaries into the work of the devil and uh, being an enemy of righteousness. He did not want Sergius Paulus to follow and believe in what he knew was the truth and yet rejected. So God uses Elimus to get where he's going. He, uh, he was actually a tool that was, that was very useful. And as we look in verse 11, it, uh, or verse 12, I mean, it tells us what happened with Elimus after the Lord's hand was upon him and he was blinded for a time, mist fell over him. In verse 12, it says, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord you know, as I was saying, God uses the limuses to get where he's going. If you want to be used wrongly of God, resist him and he'll use you. There's no problem there. He used a limus and uh, it was to his destruction. He used Judas. It was to his destruction. C.S. Lewis um, said in, in one of his books, you will certainly carry out God's purpose however you act, but it makes a difference to you whether you serve like Judas or like John. You know, don't be used by God as a stepping stone under his feet to evidence his sovereign power over his enemies, but be used instead like Barnabas, like Saul or Paul, and like John. They had a purpose of bringing the word of God, proclaiming the word of God to these people to uh, bring the straight path. And the end of the straight path was the Sergius Paulus believed. The proconsul believed, it said in verse 12. Amazing. It's the first time that a ruler became a Christian in the, that we know of. Cyprus is the first territory to be governed by a, a Christian ruler. You know, if you were to go there now, they'd take great pride in that, but it has been twisted by many alimuses along the way, and they don't follow the truth of God's word anymore. Instead, they follow the truth of traditions, and uh, the church suffers as a result. But here, at this time, the church was steadfast as uh, Paul and Barnabas were going and proclaiming the word of God. Sergius Paulus's belief, it's based on the teaching of the Lord. He saw what God had done and saw his power, but that's not wasn't the basis of why he believed. It says he believed because or for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was amazed at what he heard, astounded by what God was doing, and he followed as a result. Romans 10, 17, we see that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. 
And uh, if you've ever looked at our bulletin, it has a, a verse on there that continues those thoughts from Romans. It actually says Isaiah 52, 7, but this is quoted again in Romans 10. How lovely on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news. That is because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. The good news has to be brought, just as Barnabas and Saul brought the good news. That was the mission that uh, God had sent them on. That was God's mission from the beginning that uh, the church would be to seek and to save the lost just as Christ had done. And as you go through these verses, there's 12 verses here that we just read, but there's so much that could apply to our lives. As I was reading through them, there's, there's questions that I even asked myself. Am I, am I committed to worship like these guys were? Am I committed and spending time as not just myself, but as a congregation to worship. I mean, I was thinking, does it simply mean that I, you know, I love singing the songs or I'm emotionally moved? Those things are, are definitely parts of our worship, but there's so much more to it. As evident from the short description here, there was unity with them. There was worship together as a church. They were focused on worship. They wanted to minister to God. And they resolved to look to God for direction. They wanted to see what he had for them as a church. And they were committed to that. You know, the, even the little second half of verse two, God chose for further ministry those who are already committed to ministry. Are we committed to ministry? How are, in what ways are we committed to actively serving him? You know, the local church right here, it's a place that God's established to develop, to build up and establish his followers, to grow in their, their belief, to grow in their service to him. You know, being involved, be committed to worship together, being prayerful, be obedient to the Holy Spirit. This is the place where he's put that. It's, you might call it a safe place. While there's dissension and uh, quarrels among us sometimes, it's, that's not the, the overriding hope of the church. The church is a place where we should be developed for further ministry so we can be sent out just as Barnabas and Saul are sent out. Making prior a priority is, uh, seems to be high on the list as we look at this church with a mission. Making prayer a priority. They had already fasted and worshiped God. You're like, okay, you fasted your one time. We're good. Why do we need to fast again? No, they, they knew the seriousness of God's calling on them and on their church. And they fast in prayer, not just to do the action of fasting, not just to seem spiritual. It was for, again, to be dedicated, to be committed, to confirm what God was saying and to agree with him on what he was calling them to do, to be involved with the sending of those that would fulfill his mission. And uh, then they stood behind God with what he was doing. As, as they prayed, as they fasted, they stood behind him and were in agreement with what God had, that they would send out these men and be behind them in prayer, be a mission-sending group as a church in Antioch. As we keep going through that, those verses, I just kept thinking, what are some other things that are major aspects for this church, for those who are sent for the mission of the church? And it seems to be that proclaiming God's word would be at the top of that list. As they were, as Barnabas came to talk to the people in Antioch, it was because God's word was proclaimed. And he continued to proclaim the word. And he went and got Saul from Tarsus, who is now Paul, and had him help continue in training them and telling, proclaiming that word. That was their priority. Every time as we look through the book of Acts, they're proclaiming God's word. Wherever they're at, they're proclaiming God's word. And uh, there's a lot of things we can do to fill our time. I find time to sit on Facebook. Okay, that's a time waster. 
just let me know. <laughs> I find time to uh, surf the web, another great time waster. You look at news, oh, that's a great news article. What happened there? And then you go to the next one and the next one. I mean, it's good to know the news, but it can draw you away as well. There are things that seem good. As a church, we're the same way. We have things that fill our time that's, that can be really good. They're not bad things. They can be even great things, they, depending on, on how they're carried out, who they're helping, what they're doing. But as a church, we've been given a primary task to go and make disciples and go make followers of Christ. That can't be done without the use of words. Sometimes you hear that little adage, you know, I, sometimes I even, you know, I can't even remember now. I had it in my head earlier, but sometimes I even use words. It's kind of the end of it. But as though our actions are all that matters, our actions are what uh, lead people. But it's not our actions, it's words, words from the word of God that direct them. Paulus, um, this guy, Sergius Paulus, it was the God's word, astonished at the teaching of the Lord that changed his heart, that caused him be to believe. And uh, that's what our priority is as a church, to proclaim his word as we go out into different areas around the world, as we support missionaries, as we send them out, as we just did with Jory and Mary. It's to proclaim the word as our first, first priority. That doesn't mean we can't be involved in anything else, but as a priority, we want to be proclaiming God's word in whatever we're doing. We've had a missions team here at the church. I mean, it's only a couple years old. We've been thinking through these issues. It's been a great time of joy to talk with them and looking through God's word. What does it uh, mean as we fulfill God's mission as a church? I mean, for over two years, we've been pouring over these things and talking about it, you know, having times of prayer, sometimes even sleep, losing sleep, how we consider, how we can encourage, how we can disciple our missionaries, what we can do. But as I read here, encouraging them to proclaim God's word, to be involved with the mission that God had established, to seek and to save the lost is our highest priority and uh, where we should put our efforts and our uh, energies to. But involved with that, requires us to be obedient to the opportunities we're given to proclaim that good news. Here are Barnabas and Saul. They've got a major opposition. This guy who is already serving the proconsul, who already has an established rapport, established um, known name. He's established in the community. Everybody knows him. And here come these two guys who are unknown to everybody. And yet they are obedient to proclaim God's truth, his word, even in the midst of that opposition. You know, sometimes I wonder, is it our job to determine if we have an open door to share the gospel? Here, the door looked all open because Sergius Paulus wanted them to proclaim. But at the same time, the door on the life of Elimus was closed. They had both at the same instant there in front of them, and yet they were able to proclaim God's word. And the one who God had chosen for salvation was saved. He was there. He was able to follow the straight paths of the Lord. Don't resist what God's doing. You know, if you want to be used of God wrongly, as I said earlier, resist him and he'll use you. But that's not what we want. We talked in this uh, song, um, Our God. If our God is for us, who can be against us? That's the same as uh, what's going on here. These, these believers are like, who can be against us? God is for us. This Holy Spirit is working to send us. Who can be against us? And expect God to show his amazing grace in the lives of others. In this case, it was Sergius Paulus, one who the least that they'd expect to understand and hear God's word. And even with that, they Elimus heard the gospel. We don't know whatever happened to him, but he heard God's word. He chose to reject it, but uh, he has heard it and it was known to him. And they could go away without having a conscience of thinking, 
Did I proclaim? Did I proclaim well? Did I share what God desired for me? But they did, and it resulted in what God had done, his amazing grace in the lives of others. So as we kind of conclude here, the act, we see Acts. It's really a story of the early church, how, how it understood those words, as the Father has sent me, so I send you, as uh, Jesus was told in John 20, 21. said it clearly shows the, you know, the mission God had for the church and what he had in mind for his people to share that message. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The church's task is to seek and to save the lost. You know, one reason why this book is in the New Testament it's to prevent the church from coasting along, to gliding along. You look at the churches in Revelation, some of them were doing that. They lost their first love. They were lukewarm. They let other things come in, even though they seem faithful to certain, certain aspects of the faith. They let other major issues come in, such as Jezebel, the uh, she-prophet, who was not helping the church in any way. As you look at those things, this, this helps us to keep from coasting along, to, to keep us alert on what God desires. And uh, we don't want to enter just a maintenance mode, just to keep going, just to keep up so that we have a, a body of believers here that uh, has a service each week. But instead, we're to be doing even more than that. We're to be seeking new people, seeking new ways or new ventures that we can go out and be involved with what God is doing as he builds his kingdom. You know, the book of Acts is really a constant indictment against mere maintenance Christianity and kind of a goad, a poke, poke in the ribs, an encouragement and stimulation to seek and to save the lost. I mean, I feel convicted as I uh, would read through this. Uh, ho hopefully as we read through the Bible, every time we're convicted, but it, it's, uh, we look and see, how are we doing that? I've got opportunities. I work, you know, sometimes doing air conditioning work. I'm involved with the lives of all sorts of people who are lost. And I, you know, I know they're lost because they'll say straight up, I, would, I don't want to hear anything about that. I don't want to hear God's word. Oh, you went to seminary? Don't tell me about it. You stay over there. I'll stay over here. And that's, that's the end of it. And then there's others who say, oh, that's very interesting. And, you know, I've, I've gone to a Bible study and things like that. Am I, but at the same time, sometimes I'm still in that mode of, yeah, I don't know. Should I really, should I really say something? There's others here that might hear it that don't want to hear it. But uh, here you see Elimus and Sergius Paulus, you know, both in the same plate. Some want to hear, some don't. That's always going to be the situation. But uh, we're here to, we're called to follow this mission of God. Now's the time for thinking about the mission of God, to seeking to save the people from the wrath to come. We just read about them hiding under rocks, wanting the mountains to fall on them so that they don't have to face the wrath of God in Revelation. We talked about that last week. But uh, it's time for cherishing and worshiping this characteristic of God, that he's searching and saving, that he's a God on a mission. He's not aloof. He's not passive. He's not here just trying to bring his wrath down. He's trying to save the lost. He's never in a maintenance mode. He's working all the way to the end to correct the church, to direct the church, to help us to follow that mission. Now, for our part, there will, of, of course, be people that are going to make the crooked the ways of the path of the Lord, make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. There's always going to be that in our way. There's always going to be something going on. Sometimes we may be the one that are making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. But God makes persecution a launching pad for missions. He allows it to make the way for others to hear. He takes Herod out of the way. That happened just in chapter 12 of Acts. Took Herod out of the way and the gospel was able to be proclaimed even more. He strikes Elimus and, uh, brings to faith this man, Sergius Paulus. He carries his messengers, his mission doers, forward along the straight paths of the faith. So we have a tremendous reason to be hopeful and confident of God's mission, of our mission, of the church's mission, as we think about it. 
God's goal is faith. You know, in more and more people and more and more peoples throughout the world, he wants them to believe, to seek and to save the lost. If we join him on that straight path, he will clear their way. He is on the move. Let's join him. Let's pray. God, as we think through your words, even these 12 verses from Acts, it seems like such a small aspect of the whole of Scripture. And yet, even here, we see your desire for the church to seek and to save the lost, to be involved with what you are doing, to be responsive to what your word says, what your spirit is leading, and that as a result, the lives of others will be changed, that you will make a way to a straight path for your message from the church to those who need it. God, help us to be a part of that. We think of Jory and Mary as they're heading up to Alaska. We think of our other missionary families that our, our church is involved in supporting. We just ask that you'd, you'd help them to share that message freely, to share it boldly, to be involved day in and day out with your mission, what you're doing, that we as a church here, we'd be able to send more from our own congregation that uh, as we build up, as we grow, grown up in the faith, that we will see our need to share that with others. God, just uh, guide us today, guide us now, that we will come before you with repentance on where we fall short, and that we will just seek your guidance, your direction, and that as a church, we can move forward to join you in your mission. In Jesus' name, amen.